Welcome to the Reach Podcast with your pastor, Philip Jackson. I'm glad you all are here. For those of you that have not met me or that I haven't met you, my name is Philip. Um, um, I do want to, uh, to ask for some grace from you all because uh, there are so many new people so many new people that I am trying really hard, but my old brain is not the sharpest. So um, if, if I'm like, hey, I know your face, and I really want to be your friend, but I can't remember your name, please don't be offended, okay? I always forget Haley's name. That happens. <laughs> Open your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. Oop, a little loud. Um, the, uh, this is our last message from the book of Titus. You guys sad? I'm kind of sad. Um, but I'm excited because Taylor's teaching the next series, so that's going to be really good, so you guys don't want to miss that. Um, we have been looking at truth. We've been looking at how truth plays into our lives and how um, it's the foundation of everything. Truth is how we know that we are, that we're growing. Truth is how we know uh, that we're going in the right direction. Uh, truth is also the thing that holds us steady whenever everything um, seems to shatter. And the uh, the challenge for us in our generation is that we live in a generation that is that has convinced itself that truth isn't a real thing. That truth is something that's objective, or the subjective, and you can just make it whatever you want. Um, but that's not necessarily true. What we're going to talk about tonight is we're going to talk about truth as the source of change and uh, something that is uh, that is really prevalent. We're going to talk about church life a little bit and uh, the contrast between who we were before we found Jesus and who we are now. Um, but there is a very real, um, oh, I don't know if it's not really, not really the right word to say, but uh, a really a workaholic type mindset in church that I have to be serving in every single capacity that I can. If I'm not, if I can't tell people that I'm tired or that I'm busy, I'm doing something wrong. You know, if they say, hey, Philip, how are you doing? And if I don't say, man, I'm just so busy, that somehow something is wrong with me. And we have this mindset that we are supposed to just continually be working, be working, be working. And uh, the problem is that it misses out. We miss out on this. In fact, there is a, there is a very real deception uh, that... Um, Constantly being active is fruit. We use fruit to describe all kinds of things. Now, the byproduct of godly living, of abiding in Christ, is that we will be compelled, because we'll take on God's heart, to want to do good works. But the problem is that a lot of times we're not focused on the abiding parts. We just want to do. And in consequence of that, what happens is that we begin to feed our own ego and our own pride. Um, and that means that we need to come back to the truth. So even in the midst of all these noble things, it's easy for us to lose sight on our real job. So we're going to focus on that tonight. We're going to do all of chapter 3 of Titus. It's only uh, 15 short verses um, and uh, Paul's, uh, Paul's, Paul's farewell. So we're going to do the first eight verses and uh, then we'll continue on after that. Starting in verse 1, he says, uh, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to be peaceable, considerate, demonstrating all gentleness to all men. 
For we ourselves also were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. But when the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to His mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who believe God will be intent to lead in good works. These things are good and profitable for all men. So he starts off by talking about the reputation of a believer, that we have a, uh, a responsibility to, to live uh, in submission. Now, one of the, one of the benefits that we, that we have living in America is we have the freedom of speech, right? The First Amendment right to say whatever we want, wherever we want. But the challenge for us as a people of faith is that that's a two-edged sword. Because what it's done is it's allowed us to be able to speak our mind on any subject that we want, that we want and we can prioritize our opinions. That can be a good thing. But what happens is that we end up losing sight on the gospel purpose of how we communicate to people. And bear in mind the context of what Paul is, where, where Paul is right now in history. So um, Nero is the emperor of Rome. Nero was a very wicked person. Nero was the kind of ruler that would, uh, he was what's called a hedonist. He would do anything for pleasure. One of his favorite things was to capture Christians, and then he would impale them on a spike between their legs, and then he would cover them in tar, and then he would light them on fire, to candlelight his dinner parties in his garden. And he would ride his chariot around his garden, drinking wine, listening to people scream as they burned to death. He's the emperor of Rome at the time of the writing of this letter. So Paul is saying, you're supposed to uh, be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready for every good work. Man, how in the world could we possibly... Uh, be subservient to this type of tyranny. Now in America, that the idea of, of having to, to honor someone in authority like that, it blows our mind. There is no way that we would stand for that kind of atrocity, those types of, of human rights violations. But one of the things that you've got to realize is that in reality, no matter what our government says, no matter what kind of a constitution that we live under, we live, live under primarily, firstly, the law of God. That means that no matter who is in the White House, no matter who is in Congress, no matter who is in our, on our city council or in our school board, we have a responsibility to show them honor. And we need to use everything, every, every tool at our disposal in order to make sure that they know that we are the people of God. So he's saying we need to be uh, subject to them. We need to be uh, obedient to them, to be ready for every good work. One of the principles of Scripture in Romans 13 is that God has ordained all government to be the disciplinarian for rebellious people. The idea is that government is put in place on purpose to make sure that bad people are controlled. Okay, there's a reason. So think, think about this logically, okay? We believe as a society, as society in general, big as society, right, that we are going to come together and we are going to establish the basic rules of how to live in our environment, in our community. 
If you violate those rules, there will be consequences. Okay? Now, in America, we have this idea of individual liberty. That means that you are responsible for you. Now, here's the, here's the issue. The moment that you go out of your way and you abuse your liberty to take someone else's liberty from them, the community has a right to take yours from you because you've been a bad steward of it. Okay? You use your freedom to buy a weapon and you kill someone, the community will take your liberty from you and they will put you in jail. Okay? For bad stewards of that liberty. Now, here's the challenge. Is that all of society is constructed this way. And it's, and it's, it's made this way because God has ordained it this way. It says in Romans 13 that God has designed government to be an instrument to enforce and to control sinfulness. So that means that that government has a role to play in the kingdom of God. It's not something that we just throw away. There's a kingdom purpose to this. Now, there are some people who worship government. That's a really common thing. The government isn't going to be the solution to our problems. But that is not what Paul is saying here. And he's, and he's definitely not saying that we should just roll over and take it. But what he is saying is that we have a responsibility in how we react to people who are in authority over us, especially the pagan ones. Because look at what he says. He says in, uh, in verse 3, He says, for we ourselves also were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. He tells them that we used to be this way, that we should remember where we come from. But look at verse two. He says, make sure that you slander no one to be peaceable, considerate, demonstrating all gentleness to all men. What this means is that... um, we should be very careful about the words that we say. In our generation, this is a totally foreign idea that we, can, we should be able to say whatever we want, especially on social media. But he says we should slander no one. You may recognize this word in Greek. It's the word blasphemeo. It's where we get our word blaspheme. It means to not speak evil or to revile someone. It's the same word that's used uh, by those who mocked Jesus when he was on the cross. They slandered him. They belittled him. They, they, they diminished his value. Here's the thing that we've got to remember is that those who are of the world, they are blinded by their sin. And when we take godly precepts and we apply them to sinful people, there is going to be a natural rebellion against that viewpoint. And so whenever we are approached with our, with our government or our society or whatever it may be, our lost friends, and we say, listen, this is the way that you need to live because this is what God said. They're naturally going to turn against you. But notice what he says here is make sure that you don't slander someone, that you don't make them feel small. You remember that they are made in the image of God, that they are valuable, that they've been made on purpose for a purpose, and that they are blind to their situation. He says that we should also not be contentious. The word in Greek here means to be a brawler looking for a fight. That means someone who is who is always looking for a reason to throw down on someone. But he says, in contrast to these things, in contrast to having this, this rebellious attitude where you're always trying to fight somebody, notice what he says. He says, uh, but when the kindness and affection of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. He says we should be someone who is transformed by God. 
that we should be, in verse 3, that we should be considered of all people and not foolish or to be senseless, unworthy, or lacking understanding. The idea is that someone who has been transformed by God is someone who, who understands that who I used to be means that I'm supposed to, and, and I'm supposed to um, embrace the same grace that God gave me and give it to someone else. To understand that they are being foolish. He says that they are enslaved by their lusts and their pleasures. It implies that they're, supplis- they're helplessly drawn to things that are forbidden. This is something that's really interesting here. Because he says here that salvation came when God's affection came and was revealed. Look at verse 4. But when the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Consider that. In some translations it says that um, the love of God became apparent. It's within God's nature to want to redeem His creation, and it's unavoidable. The moment that God fell in love with His creation was the moment that it was going to be redeemed. One of the things that I find common within our our generation, young adults, is a constant devaluing of individuals. Have you ever noticed that the greatest battlefield that you have is in your own head? Where you think that you're not worthy? of God's love. Yeah, he might have saved me, but now I've got to prove to him that that he got a good deal, and so I've got to make sure that I work well enough in order for him to keep me around. I've got to make sure that I produce. If I don't produce, then God doesn't love me enough. Or maybe I'm not valuable enough to be in a relationship or to be able to steward a husband or a wife. I'm not valuable enough to steward children or to have a, a career or to have some some way that God would invest in others through me. The enemy loves to diminish and to devalue what God has said is precious. It says here that the kindness and affection of God appeared. That means that, that, that God made a conscious decision to be a part of our lives. It says that He saved us. Now notice this in verse 5. Not by works which we did in righteousness. One of the hard things is that we think that our salvation is, is based on grace and mercy, but our sanctification is something that we've got to earn. You've got to work at this. You've got to make sure that you prove yourself. But he says that, that it's not the deeds that we've done. He said it's not the works of righteousness that we did, but, but according to what? His mercy. Now, how does His mercy transform us? How does this change everything? through the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, um, is everything. Now, I want you to understand something. That the, whole, that the purpose of the Holy Spirit, His number one goal, His number one goal above everything else, is to elevate Jesus. Always. There are some, there are some who say the Holy Spirit is the one who is the supreme one. But, but Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus, the one who gave His life, is the one who is elevated as King of kings and Lord of lords. And everything, every, every creation will bow before Him and call Him King. The Holy Spirit's primary job, primary role, is to elevate the Son. The primary role of the Son is to elevate the Father. And the primary role of the Father is to elevate all of the Godhead. 
when he says that the washing and regeneration that comes from the Holy Spirit, it means that, that um, it is this overwhelming transformation that happens for a child of God. In Greek, it implies an overwhelming abundance. Now, here's, here's what, we, what we tend to think, is that God, he, he gives us mercy to save us, right? And then we just kind of stay there in kind of this stasis, this, this, this limbo, until finally we get our act together, and then all of a sudden we start being godly. But that's not what this is implying. What's, impl- what's being implied here is that God overwhelmingly gives a deluge of His grace constantly all the time for us. His mercy constantly all the time for us. That means that there is no space in the head of a, of a, of a believer for self-condemnation. That He overwhelmingly begins to transform our lives through the work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. For the sole reason that we are justified by His grace and that we would be made heirs according to, to the hope of eternal life. The gospel and hope of believers is also trustworthy. Look at this. Look at verse, look at verse 8. He says, this is a trustworthy saying. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be intent to lead, good, lead in good works. These things are good and profitable for men. He says, this is trustworthy. This, this is something that can be proven. This is something that you can build your life on. That's why Titus needs to speak confidently about these things because this is the power of change of, to change someone's life. You know, what's astounding to me is that I've spent a week in this passage in these 15 verses. And it was, um, it blew my mind. Something that I think that we get wrong, something that I get wrong often, is that I buy into this idea especially as REACH continues to grow, especially as our ministries continue to grow here at Everroom, that, that we're missing something. That as we grow, that we need to adapt and we need to change and that there needs to be more things that we need to do. And I've realized that that's not true. That the simple message that I was a slanderer once. That I was not peaceable, I wasn't considerate, or that I didn't demonstrate gentleness to anyone. And that God, in His sovereignty and in His grace, that He reached down and He said that He was going to change my life. And all I had to say was yes. You know, I wish I could tell you that it gets easier, especially when you're a pastor and you've had some seminary. I wish I could tell you that it becomes more simple, that it becomes that it becomes more natural. But the reality is, honestly, on Sunday morning I woke up and I desperately prayed that God, that, to God that I wouldn't screw up the message on Sunday. And I prayed the same prayer this morning. 
and sitting in every single meeting, knowing that knowing that that our time together was coming closer and closer and closer. I every single time I would think about it, it's like, Lord, I feel like I don't know this well enough to be able to teach it. There needs to be something more. There needs to be something extra. And right now in this moment, I realize that this is a struggle for all of us. This idea of trying, trying my best to do everything and to make it all perfect, and it just doesn't work that way sometimes. And it underscores the truth of this. That everything comes down to the kindness and the affection of God. That He would be compassionate enough not just to notice me, but to intentionally architect a life for me to where I would know Him. That means that, that no matter where I go, no matter how badly I think that I've screwed things up, that means that God has a plan for me. That means that God in His graciousness and His love and His mercy are not exhausted. God doesn't get frustrated with me. Have you ever noticed that, that, that God doesn't have any other expectation from you in your state right now than that you're going to sin? You're going to screw up. Is He like, oh man, you know what? We were doing so good. We've got to start all over now. That's not, what, that's not how this works. Guys, I've been chasing Jesus for a long time. I started seriously reading my Bible when I was 15. And um, every single time I try to do more, I realize that that's not the point. That's what he's saying here. Is he's saying, listen, we have this, we have these, these the, the world is watching us. And how we treat everybody, whether they are the president of the United States or the garbage man, it doesn't matter. Because how we live our life communicates a purpose. It communicates a message. It's supposed to communicate this same graciousness and lovingness, this same tenderness that he talks about. And when we throw that away for, for cheap points, what happens is that we, we drag God's name through the mud and we tell the world that he is not affectionate or kind, that he's not gracious or merciful. There's a bigger purpose for us than to go out and try to win some political fight or win some, some debate. The reason why this changes us is because it brings us back to, this, to the rock-solid truth of who God is, not some theological point. The truth is something that changes not just us, but also changes the church. These verses right here, these, these verses 9 through 11, look at this. He says, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and, and conflicts about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Okay, there's a couple things about this. The first thing he says is to avoid arguments. Now remember, he's talking to uh, the church at Crete, right? He's talking about people who are trying to force a bunch of legalism onto the gospel, trying to make people live a certain way according to the Old Testament law. The verb, where he's, the, the, the verb in Greek where he says avoid such people means to literally walk around them or to hide from them, uh, to do it with passion. He says we're not only supposed to avoid useless arguments, but we should also reject any activity that facilitates it. Now, I'm, I'm down for a good debate. I really am. I find that entertaining sometimes. But here's the thing. 
is that every time that we have a disagreement about something, we should be passionate about making sure that Jesus' name is known. And if we are going out of our way to build our own reputation or make someone else feel small, we're doing it wrong. He says, avoid these kinds of conversations. In other words, an argument for an argument's sake or an argument with the purpose of causing division should have no place in the church. If we're going to have a dispute about something, it needs to be an issue of substance for the sake of getting the gospel right. And if it's, if, if, and if its purpose is to divide people, the conversation should be shut down immediately. I wonder how often we do that. How often we do that? Do we do that whenever there is, whenever there is a divisive conversation happening? Do we shut it down? With your, when your friends are going back and forth and you're the third person, or maybe you're involved in this, and you know the conversation isn't right, do you speak up or do you let it happen? You know what? Sometimes the best thing to do is to close your mouth. And the thing is, is that if those, if those friends are believers, we need to hold each other accountable to say, look, this is divisive. I don't think we should talk about this. And yeah, you're going to make everybody feel like a total turd, and that's okay, because they should, because it's against God's word. Say, look, this is bad. We shouldn't do this. Avoid these conversations. Avoid the things that your, your people are trying to apply uh, wickedness or legalism to their, to their faith. Shut them down immediately. He also says to avoid divisive people. But notice something here. He, he, he doesn't say just reject them immediately. He shouldn't be like, you said one bad thing. You're out of my life. Right? Don't do that. However, he's talking about someone here who is, um, who is openly defiant. They're not interested in actual solutions. They just, want to, they just want to get into it to get into it. Not helpful at all. Because they take away from the primary mission of, of displaying the gospel. The verb for reject means to shun or to excuse yourself from it. It's like the idea of, of telling someone you can't come to an event or I can't come to a wedding. You're excusing yourself from an invitation. You literally withdraw yourself out of someone's life. If they're not correctable, they should be rejected from the church. Now, here's something that, that is, is pretty, uh, I don't know, I guess this is, this is kind of sensitive. Um, there's a mindset, wrongly, unbiblical mindset that the church should just be an open tent for everybody. Now, hear my words. The church should be a place for people to come and find Jesus. It should be full of people who are kind and gentle and of a good reputation. However, not at the expense of truth. There is a very, very dark and wicked teaching in our generation, that the church has a subjective truth. That everyone, everyone should be able to come and be a part and serve and do all their things. Not true. Not true at all. Because God's Word says that the body is reserved as an internal community to encourage people in godliness. You take someone who is of the world, who is of the darkness, and you put them in a room full of light. Scripture tells us that there's no fellowship between light and darkness. That there is open hostility between the world and God's people. So you take a worldly person and you put them in God's people, one of two things is going to happen. Either there is going to be contention and that person will leave because they're going to naturally be convicted about their sin, or they're going to realize that they have been living in rebellion to God and they are going to give their heart to the light. 
What Paul is saying here is he's saying, listen, we have a responsibility to protect our community. Everyone is welcome, absolutely. But if you are a part of what we do, you will hear truth. Because if we don't focus on truth, what happens is that we end up patting ourselves on the back on the way to hell and saying, it's okay, it's all right, you just live your truth, it's going to be fine. But that's not what God's Word says. So when there are people in our midst who are, who are actively sowing dissension, who are dividing people and they're causing factions and they're, and they're setting people against each other, number one, they need to be rebuked and loved. And if they show themselves to be unrepentant and unteachable, the community is within its rights and within its biblical boundaries to say, you know what, we love you, but there's no place for that here. Most of the time, those people will leave because they know that they, that they don't fit, because their wickedness doesn't fit with God's people. But sometimes it is necessary for the church to say, you know what, we love you, but that's not welcome. you're not welcome here. That's what Paul is saying here. These types of things, they corrupt a body of believers. The truth is something that protects God's people. It's something that has, uh, has put boundaries around itself. Notice he says that those who are argumentative will not produce the fruit of the Spirit and will be, they are self-condemned. They have gone out of their way. They are unprofitable and worthless. They've deviated from what is right and they're sinning. They illustrate the exact opposite of the transformation that Paul is talking about earlier. We talked about the overwhelmingness of the Holy Spirit coming upon us and, and bearing fruit. Instead of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that leads to life change, they focus on legalism and manipulation. What's interesting is that this is the exact, these are the exact same words that are used, that Jesus uses in Matthew to describe the, uh, the unproductive seed that is sown in a soil full of thorns. That the cares of this life, that they choke them out. Truth is what protects the body. But notice something here. It also is a source to change the world. Paul issues a, a final couple statements about um, some people that are in his life. Uh, verse, starting in verse 12, he says, When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I, have de- for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way so that, so that nothing is, is lacking for them. And our people must also learn to lead in good works, to meet pressing needs, that they will be, uh, so, so they will not be unfruitful. All who are uh, with me greet you. Greet those with love. Uh, sorry. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. So he says, so some of these people you know from other parts of Scripture, Tychicus was the one who went with Onesimus to deliver two letters to the Colossian church. One, uh, as we know, is the letter of Colossians, and the other one is the letter to the, 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 the leader of the church in Colossae, a guy named Philemon. Um. So Paul's been called to go with Titus. Apollos is one of Paul's uh, disciples in the early days and, and changed the world. But look at verse 14. The meat of this is in verse 14. Because he says, And our people must also learn to lead in good works, to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. Here's the word again, unfruitful. Here's the point of missions, is to allow other people, to allow everyone to participate in what God is doing. Here, here's something that, that we often don't think about. That we don't think that we have a place in missions. We don't think that applying the truth 
has anything to do with missions. But consider this. How passionately we pursue the truth is going to determine what the makeup of our community is. The, the priorities that we have. Once those priorities are set, it's going to produce a certain type of people. The type of people that will go and the type of people that will equip other peoples to go. What he's saying here is that if you speak the truth confidently, what's going to happen is that these people need to learn, the church in Crete needs to learn to lead in good works, to meet pressing needs. The idea is to send other people on mission. Some of you have, have done this. I know some of you in the room that you feel like, felt like God called you to go on a mission trip, called you to be a part of something, and you lacked the financial resources to do it. And lo and behold, you stepped out in obedience, and what do you know? The bill got paid, and you got to step forward in obedience. It wasn't because you did anything special. It wasn't because you made fundraising phone calls or sent out letters. It's because you literally stepped out in faith. Your community was, was created by this application of truth. It is the source of how God changes the world. That's why Paul is telling Titus, don't forget to, to preach this. Preach this day in and day out, because what this means is that, is, is, is that the cultivation of truth produces a righteous people. And here's the consequence. He says, do this, otherwise you will be unfruitful. This is the same word that's used in Matthew 13. A church that is choked by anxiety. The anxiety of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth and made unfruitful. What he's saying here is this isn't just an encouragement to go and pay people's bills and do, do ministry. He's talking about participating and being, and have, being a, a church or a community that, that has a, a bent towards a call to action. Here's what we can do. We could keep doing this. We could keep doing church on Sunday. We could keep doing reach on Tuesday nights. And we could have Sam come up and lead the worship. And we could we can make sure that we get all this polished up and make sure that, that Philip and, and, uh, and, oh my gosh, Alec are playing the drums perfectly, right? I almost said Tyson. That's not right. Alec. Alec's playing the drums right. Make sure that Allison's singing perfectly. Make sure the guitars are tuned, tuned right, right? I'll make sure that I, I'll stop printing off these pages that I get lost on. I'll do an iPad. That way I look nice. Make sure I get some, some uh, fancy shoes, right? I need, I need different, a different outfit, cooler hoodie, right? Um, they don't tell you that they wear hoodies so they can hide all their sweat under the lights. That's the thing. Um, I don't know that I made that up. Um, but think about this. We could polish all this to where it's perfect in the world's eyes. We could, we could pay our tithe. We could cash our checks. We could, we could live in our abundance. And what would end up happening is that we would turn into the Dead Sea. The thing that makes the Dead Sea the Dead Sea is that it has all these inlets that never lets anything out. This is the curse that he's talking about for the church that has left missions and left the kingdom on the street curb. He says we need to cultivate a spirit of good works to meet pressing needs so that we will not be unfruitful. Why do we go on mission trips? So that we won't be unfruitful. Why do we go to Barnabas? So that we won't be unfruitful. Why do we meet for discipleship early in the morning when we would rather sleep or spend extra time in the Word? So that we aren't unfruitful. The reason why we give of ourselves to invest in other people is so that we make sure that we are not unfruitful. Because God 
has been merciful in seeking us out. And yet if we don't do the same and take on His character to see other people, what happens is that we become dead inside. We become choked out. And the thing is, the harder we try to hold on to the things that make us supposedly secure, the more white our knuckles get, the more insecure we get because we know deep down inside that we can't hold on to it all. Truth is the source that changes the world. As Titus focuses on cultivating an understanding of the truth for the church, he was strengthening, he was strengthening and spreading the gospel around the world. Something I have never thought about until I studied this passage is that whenever I get up here and I preach the word, I'm contributing to missions. When I meet with my guys for discipleship, I'm contributing to missions. When I do my quiet time in the morning and cultivate a mission-minded heart, I'm cultivating missions. When we worship, we are doing missions. That's the thing, is that we think that the little things that we do on our own, that they don't really matter for the kingdom of God, that they're just all about me and sharpening my own axe and making sure that I'm, I'm godly. But the truth is that the things that we do in private, they manifest themselves in public and they change, they affect the world. So you think, what is the, what's, the, what's the big deal if I don't spend time in God's Word in the morning? That means that someone somewhere else is not going to be able to know the Word because you have not been faithful. That means that if I don't, if I don't faithfully do what my disciples have asked me to do, that means that the day is going to come when someone is going to miss out on what God wants me to go do. If I don't spend time in God's Word, I'm not equipped for that conversation with my friend that needs the truth. If I'm not making sure that I'm prioritizing God through the relationships, I'm not around people that can be encouraged and can encourage me. All of these things work towards missions. The primary place that believers change the world is through their daily diet of truth. So we've got to ask ourselves questions. We've got to ask ourselves, okay, the world is telling me this. What is the truth? I had uh, coffee with a guy this morning. He's going through some issues with work. His boss is, uh, is not faithful. He says, I just don't know what I'm supposed to do. Everything, he's not in a position to be able to make, a, make uh, decisions, and so he's at this guy's mercy, and he's been doing everything he can to help this guy win. The problem is his boss has been taking all of his hard work, passing on as his own, and getting all the credit. He's like, what do I do? I said, well, you make a list of all the reasons why you think that you're being unjustly used. And then you pray and you ask God, show me what your word says about these things. I said, do you think that Joseph, when he was sitting in a cell in Egypt, that he felt unjustly persecuted? Absolutely. Do you think that Potiphar benefited from him serving in his house? Yes. Did Pharaoh, did Egypt benefit from Joseph's slavery and captivity? Absolutely. But what is the truth? That God has placed us in these specific positions on purpose to shine the light of eternity into those dark places. We have a responsibility to apply truth. And so when it comes to that specific situation, I told him, I said, make a list of all these things. And you literally say, okay, God's word says this. God's word says this. God's word says this. God's word says this. We reclaim the thoughts that are in our mind. So Paul says in, in Romans chapter 12 that we transform our mind through being a living sacrifice. So here's my final encouragement to you. I know that I've been all over the place tonight. I feel scatterbrained. I really do. 
I hope that you know that truth is real. The truth is absolute. And the enemy is going to do everything that he can to convince you that that's not the case. And the way that you take the fight to the enemy, the way that you change the world, the way that you put, you put God's fingerprints on every person around you is if you live by what's true. When questions come at work, you live by what's true. Ask the question, what does God's Word say about that? And then you write it down. When you have issues with friends, you ask the question, what does God's Word say about that? When a friend brings you questions, don't give them your opinion. Don't, don't give them your opinion. Say, what does God's Word say about that? Let it be the foundation of everything that you do and everything that you are. And what's going to happen is it's going to change the world. As we go out here, out from here tonight, my prayer for reach for us is that we would be a community that lives by the truth. That we would not be afraid of it. Especially if we're wrong. Hey guys, this is Philip Jackson, pastor to young adults at Evergreen Baptist Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Evergreen Church in South Tulsa, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. The mission of Reach Tulsa is to cultivate a young adult community that's defined by real transformation and a sincere pursuit of a godly life through training in biblical disciplines, personal development, and intentionally transitioning into independence as mature members of the body of Christ. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Reach Young Adult Ministry is a part of Evergreen Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.